I find it very disturbing when I encounter chefs that want to work on cookbooks and they can't tell me what their favorite cookbooks are. I'm like, why do you want to make a cookbook when you don't respect the books that have preceded you? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Osai Endelin is a journalist, cookbook author, and cultural commentator of the highest degree. In this fast-paced episode, we talk about her latest cookbook project with the members of Ghetto Gastro. We find out about what goes into writing a cookbook that isn't really a typical cookbook. And we hear about her life growing up in California and her early work in television and film. This talk is a long time coming, and I hope you enjoy getting to know one of food media's great blue flame thinkers. Osai Endelin, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in the studio, and congrats on the book. Thank you. I've just held it in hand for the first time, and it's gorgeous. It's cool. It is a beautiful thing in the world. I'm really proud of it. Go Gastro's Black Power Kitchen we're talking about. It's out in the fall. It's out October 18th. Uh, October 18th, great. Let's jump into your background, because I wanted to have you in to talk about your career, yes. which I've admired from afar. We haven't really connected this way. I've we haven't. It. We've, like, passed each other, you know, and like stuff. chips in the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough, but we haven't shared a meal, and that needs to change. That needs to change, please. I want to hear about, you grew up in Southern California, Northern California. You grew up in the Inland Empire, the Bay Area. You went to college at UCLA in Southern California. So what was food like at this time in your life? What was food like growing up? Yeah, I actually hit another uh, region of California, the San Joaquin Valley as well. So I I was born in La Jolla, which is right outside San Diego. My parents met in college at uh, University of California, San Diego. And um, not long after I was born, we ended up in the Bay Area because they were both in graduate school. Um, So we lived in the East Bay uh, until I was about eight. And I moved to Clovis um, when my dad taught at Cal State Fresno for a few years. So I spent the middle part of my childhood there. And then I went to high school in Moreno Valley, which is in the Inland Empire, about an hour east of Los Angeles. Not generally an area that a lot of people visiting Cali um, Mm -hmm. hear about, but it's – you know, very suburban, but also like really diverse and cool. rich. So I had a lot of different, you know, um, kind of uh, cultural experiences just in terms of where I was living. But the household food, I feel like always reflected where we were because um, as someone recently told me, are you fake Asian? Like I eat a lot of, <laughs> eat a lot of uh, Asian cuisines. I, yeah. I grew up eating a lot of Mexican food, of course. Um, I didn't even, I, I, I joked around uh, recently that I don't think I realized certain foods were Mexican in, until like ah. later because it was just so much a part of California eating and, you know, it didn't really matter what culture you're from. Like yeah. everybody had a version of a taco at home. I think a lot of, a lot of black kids I knew up also, a lot of black kids I knew growing up also had, you know, kind of their iteration of tacos in, in the house. It wasn't considered from a place. It was, it was Los Angeles it was, as a whole. So, but but my maternal grandparents were from the South. Mm-hmm. My father was from Nigeria. And so the food that was cooked was, I feel, like a combination of that 90s California cuisine. Like mm-hmm. we had a lot of 
tofu. We didn't eat a lot mm. of dairy in my household. So, you know, there was always, you know, some kind of soy-based yeah. something. But there was also, like, these really rich stews with goat meat, you know. And, and you know, I feel like, yeah, it was, it was just very eclectic. It was Food was always exciting. It was always a source of a lot of interest. We yeah. had big, healthy appetites, very healthy relationships to food. Um, my mom said that as children, she just never really had to, like, you know, some kids are really picky or kind of struggle to focus when it's time to eat. And that was never... Never you? <laughs> that you, was you never me. It was never any of us, dishes. really. Yeah. So we ate everything. So let me ask you, um, growing up in around California, did you feel that food in California was special? I mean, you knew it was what you grew up eating, but did you feel you were in a special part of the world did you feel that it was not because of the food, but that did translate because of being in Cali, even sure. though I was definitely for most of that for most of my life in parts of California that visitors don't come to. But it's it's very clear growing up in California, especially when I did that people are very interested in where I'm from and, and want to be there. And it's like a uh Really, like there's still this sort of golden sheen yeah. uh, on the place, and um, I have always thought that was funny because as much as California leads in so many ways, you know, it's a lot of issues, especially mm. in the 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 non-touristy areas yeah. that don't get as much you know shine. So it was sort of a shock when I decided to leave California because, again, like you, no one really says it to you explicitly, but you you get it from the sense that. Everybody's always moving to California. Everyone's always wanting to visit. Very rarely do people talk about leaving Cali, or if they mm-hmm. do, they always want to come back. Um, so you do kind of grow up feeling like you are in the best place. And, um, and when it, with the food factored into that, maybe as I got older, got into college, started you know, reading old Jonathan Gold, you yeah, know, that, that kind of thing. I was going to ask, being a UCLA student, were you following the Gold Trail? I had a friend who um, I knew through um, just sort of our friend group, but we also overlapped with some um, French classes. And he was he had come up as a cook in um, Santa Cruz, you know, where he uh, where he was from and was really deeply following gold. And I wasn't as into like the hunt, mm-hmm. but I loved benefiting from like, okay, he made a decision about where we're going to eat. I'm going to eat there. Right. So, cool. so that, so that was, that was always cool for me. Yeah. Let me ask you, so food writing, did you find that you were, you were reading gold and you, you clearly had a, there was a community of writing happening when you were at UCLA, I'm sure. Did you find food writing early in your life? Did you no. feel it would be a career? No, no, and I and I I wasn't even really reading gold that closely, but yeah. I will I will say like I was always interested in food. I was always interested in dining. I was always interested in trying new dishes and having that sense of community with people who kind of quote unquote get it, mm-hmm. you know, at the table. I thought I wanted to go into TV production. I had an internship at a. Um, production company, mm. and I had learned about development, which is the process that precedes a show being in mm. production. So like reading scripts? It's reading scripts. It's also um, reading books or, or observing other things in the zeitgeist and trying to think about how that might translate to a treatment, which is uh, sort of the predecessor to a script. Yeah. It kind of uh, breaks down like, uh, you know, what a show 
supposed to be and, you know, what it was supposed to feel like, look like, sound like. Um, so I was doing a lot of coverage at the time, which is, you know, grunt, yeah. it's grunt work. But, you know, you're just going through scripts and trying to identify things that, you know, the production uh, staff might feel has legs. You know, you're seeing your your bosses come in and out of pitch meetings with networks and things like that. So I, that's where I thought I was mm-hmm. going. I thought I was going to kind of come through storytelling in that way. I had initially been an English major before I moved over to French um, and uh, Afro-American studies. English was really difficult um, for me to kind of link into because it wasn't about crafting Mm-mm. story. Uh, I'm a lit major uh, myself. Yeah, you know the graduate. pain. Yes, yes, you know I the do. pain. And I really struggled with feeling like I had to read Beowulf again and yeah. Chaucer and Milton and T.S. Eliot, but like I somehow had to wait until I was a senior uh, class, you know, a member to study American authors like Toni Morrison, mm, Octavia like Butler. Yeah, it was like these were like somehow electives and not just foundational yeah. to which I I feel like is a real identity crisis across uh, the university landscape in terms of how we think about um, what we teach, you know, Reading literature. Lists. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I basically thought, well, I'll come to storytelling in some other way. And, and the producer had told me, look, you know, it's kind of cool that you're doing something that is giving you an international perspective. You're learning another language. You know, you're you're exploring more about you know your your cultural heritage. You know, through African American history, Black history. Um, we don't need everybody to come through film school. We don't need everybody to come through English. Mm-hmm. You don't need everybody to come through you know some of these traditional uh, ways that. You reflect a lot of the repetition you see in Hollywood, right? So that ultimately didn't pan out the way I, I wanted. I, I had like some stints as you know working for celebrities and, and temping on death. Working for celebrities, yo! Yeah. Can we can we get a little bit of what that is? Because that's I can't let that just fly. Uh, like, yeah, was there? It was, it was short. I mean, okay, yeah. is this entourage shit? Are we, are we no, like assisting? No. I, yeah, I was an assistant to Diana Ross for a very short period. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. Cool. Wow. Cool. 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 It was, you know, she's, amazing. She was, she was pretty mellow during that. Yeah. Time. yeah. But, um, I, I just saw like, man, I, I'm not getting the, you know, um, I, someone has said that like, you need a sponsor when you're like in your twenties working <laughs> in LA. And yeah. I feel like I had, I had, a, I had that through college. Mm-hmm. And then like, after that, it was kind of like, all right, like. This grind, I'm working a job, I'm commuting from the valley. What's the one Diana Ross food request that you got as an assistant? I feel like she was always thinking about lunch, which was nice. She she always bought lunch. (laughs) Um, And I just remember it being like kind of that L.A. like sandwiches, salads, like... Yeah, it Classic was pretty stuff. like nothing crazy. Okay, nothing crazy. I'm not gonna do one. That's a that's a cool story. Yeah, but I, I I would say like I mean you asked me like this was like a very circuitous way to talk about food writing, mm-hmm. which is that when I decided I wanted to pursue writing, um, it was years after I had left um, college, and I did not decide to do a MFA program until after I had demonstrated some things to myself that made me feel like I was going in the right direction, and I never thought that food writing was like my my goal it just so happened that the things i was already doing in my life gave me a baseline of knowledge and being in atlanta magazine during an internship that i had mm-hmm. during my graduate school program um it provided me with a access to see like oh there's bill addison over there that's actually a thing a mm. restaurant critic food editor is oh, were you thing. working there when bill was in atlanta yeah cool. so i was actually a digital editorial intern and 
my head kept turning over <laughs> down the hall to see. See, Bill, Bill's the best. Like, yeah. I love Bill. And he was always in and out, but cool. um, my, um, my, my kind of claim to fame as an intern <laughs> in Atlanta Magazine at the time was I sat in on a meeting, and I always tell folks when I talk <laughs> to students, you know, go to every meeting that you get invited to because um, I wasn't, I didn't have to be there, but I wanted to be there. And there was a lot of conversation that was happening that was above my head in terms of, you know, existing workflows mm-hmm. and assignments that had already been out. But there was something on the roster that um, didn't have a writer assigned to it. And they were like, gee, who are we going to get to write this really important beer feature? And I was sitting there like as a person who had been writing about craft beer and in a lot of breweries in Atlanta that were budding at the time. Atlanta had recently changed their laws to um, basically make it easier for independent brewers to get started Mm. and to have more range and what they could Really advanced look for a community, very advanced look right there. Yeah. I I mean, it was was a kind of a really hot time in the beer world then. And um, I approached the editor-in-chief at the time, Steve Hennessy, and I said, I would like that assignment. And he said, okay, well, can you send me some things and we can talk about it? And I sent him some clips and he signed it to me and he nice. paid me. And that was my first feature. I, I'm Good. supposedly the only intern to have ever oh. acquired a feature assignment. Put um, it on LinkedIn. I, like I know. I, like I that. Always, But yeah, so <laughs> no, that was cool. kind of how I started. Great advice for young uh, writers to attend meetings and put yourself out there. Young right. and or new. Yeah. I mean, I would say yes. like my, my really what it, when it started to click for me was when I started to see that there was a way I could bring in my personal story and, uh, and questions I was asking about my heritage and cultural identity into the conversation around food beyond openings or closings or staff changes or, you know, specials that restaurants are running, things like that. Like I wasn't really interested in the yeah. movement of the personnel. transaction of it. Yeah. yeah. I was interested in the story people were telling in and around the food. And yeah. And and so you ended up uh, working with Marcus Samuelson on the rise and uh, the the book we'll speak about, the Ghetto Gastro book, uh, among other writing and, pro- and projects, which we can get into. But I'd like to hear about you picking your book projects. How do you pick your book projects? Well, that is the, that is the pointed term is pick. <laughs> because yeah. um, for a while, it seemed like I wasn't doing a good job of that. I have to say, like, um, it is very exciting you know, mentor uh, Lolas Eric Eli, who mm-hmm. you know you may know, um, yeah. said to me, you know, once that you're getting to the point where you're going to have to say no to things that you would really have liked to do uh, mm-hmm. because you just don't have the time or the bandwidth or, you know, you need a break or, you know, there's too many other factors going on. And when you work so hard for so long to be in that space of, being the person who gets the call, it is really hard to notice, oh, I've ar- by the time yeah. you notice you're at the point where you should have started saying no to things, it's too late, right? Yeah, good so advice. I, Absolutely. I really yeah. struggled to not take on too much. Um, the, the other part, you know, so I, you know, I guess to say earnestly at the top, I try to do things that are, uh, that are aligned with what I want to see out there in the world, not just as someone who's making things, but as a, um, a consumer also of literature, of cookbooks, yep. of 
you know, this these varying, you know, media, um, I I want to add to the conversation that I'm already listening to, right? Um, I find it very disturbing when I encounter chefs that want to work on cookbooks and they can't tell me what their favorite cookbooks are. I'm like, mm. why do you want to make a cookbook when you don't respect the books that have preceded you? Pull quote, pull um, quote. I love that thought. That is so smart. Yeah. Not, no, no one takes that advice as a, as a, as a chef. And let me tell you, some of the work <laughs> reflects it. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I feel like it is a very uh, pointed yeah. um, effort on my part to try to work with folks that at this point, you know, when I, when I started working, you know, on, on cookbooks, it was brand new to me. I didn't even really know I was qualified. I didn't really understand the scope of the role. Mm-hmm. It, it changes on every project. Uh, an executive told me recently that only 20% of book collaborations across all industries really work out. So whether, you know, you're talking about hmm. a politician, a musician, uh, you know, a business executive, a, a chef, like finding someone to work with you to to understand your voice, to understand how you operate day to day because you're going to be spending a lot of time with this person over the next couple of years. It's kind of crazy. Like you basically meet a person and then decide, yeah, sure, let's be forever bonded together through a project. Through and art <laughs> and through writing words and through a project that will be in the Library of Congress. Yes. Forever like, sealed in a, in a mountain somewhere. And, and you decide like over a Zoom or over yeah. a coffee. It's, it's absurd. And yeah. certainly I've had some failures in that regard on projects where – I may have started off and didn't finish or, you know, the project fizzled out or, Mm -hmm. you know, in some cases, like, people aren't really fucking with me anymore. And it's like, okay, well, okay. You can't – You unfortunately, there's not really a lot of uh, guidance. And I've had to really, you know, just kind of pull together my own – board of directors to help help me navigate. But I really fundamentally – I mean, like, what attracted me to uh, the – project with Ghetto Gastro was that they were talking about things that I was already doing in my own life as well. And I felt like there was a strong synergy for the challenge of distilling a voice uh, of multiple figures. Oh my gosh, it's impossible. Yeah. It's an impossible. Talk th- about it. Three Let co-authors and then a collaborator who's an author of yourself on yes. your own. Um, John, Pierre, and Lester, when you're sitting down with those guys and you're like outlining your book, yeah. uh, maybe it's Zoom, maybe it's IRL. I'm not sure. Black Power Kitchen. What are you got? What are you doing? Are you are you identifying the Q and A's first? Are you identifying the essays? The way this project kind of evolved was I um, get, so Ghetto Gastro had told their publisher Artisan and um, the editor of this book Judy Prey, uh, who I had known you know through other. Media relationships. Respect Judy Prey. Love Judy Prey. Yeah, she's a really she's a great sharp and kind uh, person, sharp editor, kind person. Um, and I, I really enjoyed working with her on this project. Uh, she brought me in as one of the folks that Ghetto mm. Gastro interviewed. I didn't know any of them before working on this book. And um, they had they had said, "Look, we want to work with a black woman. You know, bring us people who can, like, you know, what we need." You know what it's going to take to get this book done better than us. Like, you bring us people. And Judy had reached out and said, you know, would you be interested in this? They actually wanted to work with someone who lived in New York because that um, is home is is their home base. At the time, I was living in Florida, but, oh, I, was, uh, but I was moving to New York already. Moving. So um, we ended up meeting 
uh, just a few weeks after I'd gotten into town. The fiber of this book is New York City, so you have to live here to write this book. Which is funny because they were not even here for the beginning part. Um, So they were locked down in Cayman Islands, P and uh, Uh. Pierre goes by P often. Um, So so John and P were in Cayman. Les was somewhere. I don't know. He was was around. Uh, I was the only one in New York, which I thought was hilarious. But, you know, the pandemic proved to turn many expectations and needs on on its head. Um, So basically through that initial meeting that we had, Back in February, to me getting put on the book, to really figuring out, okay, what are we doing here? They had the premise, like Black Power Kitchen, that was a phrase they had been using. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some themes. They had, you know, uh, things that they wanted to address. Really, they kind of handed it over to me. And this is what happens a lot is, like, I'll come to the table and say, okay, so-and-so, like, what do you want to do? And they'll be like, what do you think? <laughs> Right? Funny how that and, works. It's so true. I've been in those meetings before. And and it's a great opportunity <laughs> to kind of get your ideas out there. It also, I think, shows just how much um, faith and and yeah. uh, also, like, you know, maybe even some, some sense of, like, we don't really know what, like, we can we can massage something once we see it. It's very hard for some people to think in the abs- abstract, right? They can, they like to... Or as I say, like, you can't revise a page that has no words on it, right? An empty page. So, like, you got to start with something. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I had talked with all of them extensively and kind of learned more about their personal journeys. Um, I had read a lot of the coverage that had been out there that was primarily around, you know, their events and, like, the big splashes and collaborations that mm-hmm. they had done already. Um, and started to soak up as much time with them as I, as they could once they came back stateside, um, a lot of that looks like just frolicking around and playing. But the thing about writing that people don't understand, it's not like photography where you're going to see me click, 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 clicking Mm -hmm. and like, oh, she's doing her work. Like me being in a conversation with P and his mom, that's part of my research. Like me sitting in John's, you know, crib in the Bronx, that's part of my research. Me, you know, on a text thread with less, you know, following his Aquarian mood mood cycle. Like, that's also, yeah, it's building relationships, but it's also why when I turned in my first rundown of the outline and said, okay, what do you all think about this? Let's get Judy on a call. Let's all look at it. There wasn't a lot of corrective measures being made, right? It's like, oh, that doesn't sound like us. That doesn't feel right. It was all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we're adding more names or we're adding more ideas to the mix. But really it starts with me collecting a lot of information and distilling it down. And that was the biggest task they had. We're like, we've been doing this for almost a decade at that point. But they were like, we don't have anything tangible that we can hand over to people and say, this is who we are. This is what we do. We don't really know what ghetto gastro looks like in book form. And so my job was to do that on the narrative side. And it's I'm so very... successful. I mean, you should be proud. I mean, it's a blend, just to summarize, it's a blend of Q&A, essay, art, uh, and of course, recipes. Um, and it's it's seamlessly woven through the, the, the book. You can, you can pick it up and p- turn to any page and find a new essay or a new concept. And I want to go over a few of them because yes. I know we can't, this conversation, we can't like distill it all in a conversation. But I had a few things that jumped out of me. I, I got to spend some time with it. Okay, so Wolf, 
the acronym we only layer flavor as like a cooking ethic is genius <laughs> i love it we only layer flavor only la- what does that mean so that is a you know ghetto gastro catchphrase they have many in this book and that speaks to a philosophy of uh, making sure that you're caring for the food and the ingredients at every step in the process. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of new cooks, um, a lot of folks that I find who try to cook cuisines that may not have been part of their upbringing or their um, or close, close study, they think they can kind of just throw it all in at the finish. Mm. Or, you know, like I, I went to a dinner once um, by someone who does not cook Chinese food. They were not. They were not Chinese, and they were trying to do a take on um, this cucumber salad, and it was really awful because the balance was all. You know, there mm. there was no sweetness. It was all heat and mm. like it was like, know, the, like Szechuan the, fish chi- the Szechuan tingly. Yeah, yeah but it cucumber. wasn't doing what it needed to do at all. And uh, and yeah. and um, yeah. I I think about you know when you say like we only layer flavors, it's like you got to know what to do when and how much, right? And so uh, these guys have a very easygoing vibe, but there's a lot of precision that is backed up behind that um, sense of, oh, yeah. of, you know, chillness. So I think that it's an interesting term to remind folks that you're going to put a little here, you're going to put a little here, you're going to put a little here. And sometimes it's speaking to effort, right? Because, um, you know, this is really not like a you know, one pot cook kind of mm-hmm. cookbook, you know, like mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to have some things going for a few days. You're going to have to come yeah. back and check. Uh, there are some, you know, simple recipes for, for newcomers or people who don't have a lot of time, but um, many of these recipes are going to require some I mean, planning. to force some kind of concept that require that says like easier, simple into this book would be a, a real disappointing, you know, outcome. If right? it, if it, if it took away from exactly. the, the, the greater story or the richness of the recipe, I mean, look, there's no, there's no shame in shortcuts and, and trying to, you know, we're all strapped for time and resources. So, you know, understand, understanding all of that, but yeah, yeah, when, you know, the best case scenario I think is to, to want to allow the cooking process to move at its own pace and to ensure that, you know, you're thinking about that outcome every step of the yeah. way. Well, I mean, as I said at the top, it's like the ethic of this book and the energy of this book is is the black experience in New York City. Yeah. I mean, this is what you're getting. And one piece that stuck out is the idea of hood Chinese, mm. um, which I think is a unique expression um, of American Chinese cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, some may say, many may say it's a pejorative term, mm-hmm. negative term, hood Chinese. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. But in the essay and the accompanying art uh, recipe, it's not pejorative. It's actually celebrated um, in the way that yourself and your co-authors, I think, have have done a, a service for a style of cuisine and cooking that anyone's lived in New York. You kind of know what you're talking about, but you don't. So I guess, how did you land on that concept? And what is the recipe that you're, you're doing, doing there? You're referring to... Um the recipe in the book is called Jade's Palace. Yeah, and that that's right. is um, an homage to um, a restaurant in in the Bronx that the guys are familiar with. And Hood Chinese speaks to all the spots that you know that, that we see all over the city. Um, these hole in the wall places that um, are it's the hood spot. It's the late night spot. It's cash only spot. It's you know the menu is faded pictures above you. Um, you know with everybody knows their their number yeah. and um and um i think that it, you know one of the things that we talked about with this um 
dish and with the head note um, or the essay, you know, that that opens it is reflecting on what comprises the Bronx, right? What, yeah. what that, that that opening chapter are are all dishes or recipes that reflect on the experience of what it means to be in the BX. And um, you know, the Hood Chinese restaurant is very ubiquitous in, in black culture. You hear it um referenced in music, you hear it talked about uh uh beef and broccolis refers yeah. to a, a Timbaland boot, right? So like that's not my culture that I grew up in California, right? We of course had tons of Chinese restaurants. Yeah, SGV you go out there and it's not in a, you know, a uh, small space. Right. right. It's not in a it's Single not burner. in a tiny kind of strip mall where you just know dining, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very different experience. But I think that speaks to a few things. It speaks to First, uh, the migration of you know Chinese Americans and um, and Chinese immigrants and their willingness and and ability to adapt their cuisine to the culture that they are feeding. You see this throughout the country throughout yep. since the 20th century. Um, uh, uh, and I also think that it speaks to um, more systemic and troubling practices in the U.S. in terms of how people are grouped together and the power dynamics that are in play with who gets to occupy space. Um, there are a lot of tensions around this um, in, in black and Asian cultures throughout the U.S., particularly in metro urban areas. And, you know, we get into some of that in, mm-hmm. in the piece. And so, you know, it's talking about like, all right, you know, we're coexisting and we're coming up against, you know, sometimes some very difficult issues where, you know, uh, as, as, as John's mom said to me, you know, in conversation, you know, one afternoon, she liked going to places when those people were living in the neighborhoods, when everything started changing and things in the neighborhood mm-hmm. started shifting. It was like, oh, like, you don't live here anymore. It was a commercial transaction at that it, point. It, it was, became a transaction. Yeah. And it wasn't about community. And now you're extracting from the community. And now you have, like, you don't know the kids that are coming in. You don't know who, you know what I mean? There's a lot of things are happening at, at once. So, so what does it look like to have you know, that favorite food. And, you know, I have a friend that's like, he's from um, the Bronx slash Harlem. And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I could have a great like five course meal and have some kind of fine dining extravagant dinner. But like if I stay out late and I drink <laughs> and I'm hungry again, I'm going to the Chinese spa. I want yeah. my beef lo mein. You know, like that's and a lot of us, you know, I think recognize that we are like deeply comforted by Chinese food. It's it's delicious. Yes. And it's available and it all comes together, right? Yeah. In a beautiful thing. DITC digging in the curry. You're digging tying uh big L and curry, and that speaks to me. And that's a great essay. So let's talk about that. I don't want to like spoil the show, but what it, what were you doing there playing around with this iconic group uh so this is another cool thing where they're like the you know ghetto gastro is so good at merging their influences you know with um uh whether they be artistic musical you know design uh you're gonna feel that in the food you're gonna get that in the references uses very intentional um this chapter is in the chapter we call durag diplomacy yeah uh and it speaks to that yeah you know, this is a very Bronx-based crew. It's a New York-centric conversation, but it's also a global one. Ghetto Gastro is not just about being in New York. It's about taking who they are wherever they go. And uh, that speaks to, I think, a larger conversation of being that mutable and being that open to influences, but also taking 
who you are and knowing how powerful your influences are back home and, you know, what is what happens when those things combine. So yeah. this was about them being in Thailand. They were in Bangkok and uh, encountered someone who was, you know, said, oh, you got to meet my mom's. Like, she, she mm-hmm. throws down. So they end up, <laughs> like, P ends up literally, like, an hour outside of town in this woman's garage, you know, like, watching her make this curry again like the layering of the flavors and you know um, being so intentional and you know studying and and learning from her Um, and but we kind of combine it with this idea of digging in the crates uh, which refers to going through those stacks of vinyl and finding those gems that's what spoke to me it was like combining the two worlds and bringing it together 100% yeah and um, this was definitely um, one of the head notes that was shaped from the Gigi experience. A lot of these, like, I kind of came with a framing or, you know, posited an idea or framing, and this was one where I was like, okay, I need y'all to help me kind of yeah, think about it's great. this. And, and and I love what, what we came up with because um, if you're of, of a certain era, age, I, I remember what it was like going through my parents' records. Mm-hmm. And that that's, um, for a lot of black Americans, especially in that transition into hip-hop, uh, that was a very important part of not just knowing the hits that were coming out, but also knowing the music that was sampled. And what does that mean when you bring that philosophy to food? And you know that that is explored not just throughout the book, but particularly in yeah. that in that recipe as well. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. Will Gadero, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, bud. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I um, I want to ask you first off, uh, in 2017, you, you ran the number one restaurant in the world. I mean, when you write in your book on reasonable hospitality about the moment before that when you were like 48 or 49, but one, you, in 2017, you're number one. You're sitting in that auditorium in some cool, cool place overseas. What is going <laughs> through your mind as a number one restaurant in the world? Which, by a body of, of judges that many in the industry respect, and and that number, you know, it's a debated number, but it meant a lot, especially in 2017. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting, and, and one of the things I write in the book is that, okay, the idea that one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world is a little, like, it's, it's that, that's just crazy, right? But, <laughs> yeah. But I do believe that what the, what the list acknowledges on an annual basis is the restaurant that is having the, the greatest impact on the world of cooking. Um, when you look at Ferran Adria and El Bulli and what they did with molecular gastronomy and how that changed how people were cooking all over the world, or when you look at Rene Redzepi and Noma and how that sense of place, local foraging, like creating the kind of restaurant that wouldn't make sense if it existed anywhere else in the world, that that changed restaurants all over the world. A hundred percent. You think of the the devil devil wears Prada moment with the seam and how it's copied over and over. Same goes for restaurants. Um, did you think you would be number one that year? Well, we were, you know, we, we hoped we would. I mean, listen, kind of answer, answering the question, how did it feel? Well, you know, me and my team had been spending years trying to make our impact in kind of approaching the way that we served people, the hospitality we were giving to our guests and our colleagues, like, taking the same unreasonable pursuit, not only to the food we were serving people, but the way that we were making people feel. We wanted that to be our impact. And so, yeah, when 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 you are basically given an award that, that mm-hmm. communicates, hey, you've made that impact, 
mean, that's a feeling that's very, very hard to articulate. I mean, yeah. how did it feel in that moment? Really, really good. Really good. And you write about what uh, built towards that moment in the book and the pain and the and and really the the amount of detail that you would uh, you know focus on with your with your staff. And I think one of those details, and I've always been fascinated about this about EMP. Oh, the Dreamweavers. The Dreamweavers, these are people, staff, I think you said there were a couple individuals on your staff whose sole purpose was to um, create an environment or experience for your guests that goes beyond food on the plate. And it required research. It looked. It was looking into their background using Google. Just let's talk about the Dreamweavers. I think it's such a cool part of your kind of ethic as a, as a, a restaurateur and an operator. Yeah, so, so the origin story of the Dreamweaver is that one day on a busier-than-normal lunch service in 2010, I was in the dining room helping out the servers when I found myself clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies that were on vacation to New York on their way to the airport to head back home after their meal. And I overheard them talking. Then they were saying, like, what an amazing meal. And they were going through all the restaurants they'd been to, per se, Le Mardin, Momofuku, Danielle. Now, 11 Madison Park. And then one person jumped in and said, oh, but you know what? We never got to try a New York City street hot dog. <laughs> And it was just one of those moments where you feel like a, a like a cartoon character with a light bulb that goes off over your head. And I mm-hmm. walked as calmly as I could back into the kitchen and then ran out the front door and down the block to the hot dog cart, grabbed a hot dog, ran back into the kitchen. Then came the hard part, convincing the chef to serve it. Yeah, right. <laughs> was it on uh, – was it in paper or was there actually – was it on a plate? Well, so then we took it and, <laughs> and he cut it into four perfect pieces oh, and added a cool. swish of ketchup and a swish of mustard and a little cannelle of sauerkraut and relish. Oh, and, fun. You, you shaped the, the sauerkraut. Beautiful. Um, and before their last savory course, uh, which was the honey lavender glazed duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, the server and I went back to the table and put down the hot dog and I introduced it to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets in New York <laughs> City hot dog. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I'd served thousands of, of dishes in my career, um, like world-famous yeah. dishes, and I'd never seen anyone react the way that they did to that hot dog because it was specific to them. And man, sometimes you know, athletes go to the tapes after they've had a bad game to see what they could do better. Mm-hmm. They should more often go to the tapes when they've had a good game to see, okay, something just went well. How do I make sure we repeat this? Yep. And so we started talking about it with the team constantly. You know, it it required being present at the table, present enough that I was able to pick up on that throwaway line. It required taking what we do seriously but not taking ourselves so seriously that we mm-hmm. let some, you know, collection of arbitrary self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving our guests the things that would make them the most happy. And it required this recognition that if what you're doing is trying to give people a sense of genuine belonging, one size fits one. Mm-hmm. And so we started talking about this. We're like, we got to do more of this. This is awesome. But there's not like a bench of people in the back of the restaurant that can just go and run errands throughout the course of oh, a service. Oh, no, it takes a lot of like budget and, and, and actual like thought that goes into it. So what, what, what goes into the process of, of doing a dossier on a guest and, and weaving their dream, so to speak? Well, it's not all dossiers. I mean, oftentimes you're just reacting to things that I see. you're picking up in the moment. It's being present, as you, as yeah. you said. It's, being present, it's like this overused thing, right? But nah, when it comes it to sense. being hospitable, like the idea is caring so much about the person you're with that yeah. you stop caring about all the other things you need to do into it and it's amazing the amount you can learn about someone if you just slow down enough and pay attention and so yeah some things we'd learn in advance you check a guest google or uh, instagram account and Mm -hmm. you see that they love everything including bacon and so maybe we 
change our granola that night to one that has <laughs> bacon in it. But like a lot of the time, you know, it's just listening. Maybe, I mean, one of the examples I think I wrote about in the book, which I just love because the guy who we gave it to, who I didn't know when we gave it to, has become a good friend because of that gesture. Um, he was also on vaca- on a business trip to New York, leaving to go home after the meal, and we overheard him saying to his guests that he really messed up. He was supposed to get his daughter a stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. And so the Dreamweavers took kitchen towels and made a little I Love New York teddy bear and oh, gave it cute. to him. And he never actually gave it to his daughter because he loved it so much he wanted to keep it for <laughs> oh himself. Oh, my gosh, it's in his office somewhere <laughs> yeah, as a exactly. token. I love that idea. I mean, Will, it's it's part of um, the EMP experience, especially when you were there. You're currently not there, and, and we can talk about the separation from Daniel Hum and, and what went into that. But when you were there, I mean, it was known as the place that you would take guests to Central Park who had never seen snow. That's a classic example. Hmm. Are there any other examples? I'm just so f- fascinated with this this concept of hospitality going to that level. I mean, there were so many. And, I you bet. know, the, the, the moment where I, I set up an Instagram page just for our team – because the best way to inspire a group of people to deliver moments of graciousness like that are, yeah. well, A, for them to do it just once. And then when they see the look of complete joy on someone's face when they receive a gift that that person is responsible for giving them, I mean, that is yeah. a beautiful addiction. B, it's receiving hospitality like that. It's hard to know how good it feels to give <laughs> it until you've you first like recognize how good it is to receive it. But then C... When you just see examples of things that your colleagues are doing, it inspires you to want to do it more. And the coolest thing was when I suddenly saw so many things happening in the restaurant that I had nothing to do with, like when the culture Mm -hmm. fully took root. I mean, one night there was a couple that came in to console themselves because their beach vacation flight was canceled. And they had this beach vacation they were looking forward to Mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to happen. So at the end of their meal... We turned the, the private dining room, which was empty that night, into their very own private beach. Oh, my. With, like, a ton of sand on the ground and those folding chairs and a kiddie pool filled with water they could dip their feet oh, into. Oh, that's cool. I mean, who are your customers? I mean, I, I feel in my world there's, of course, the closing dinner from Goldman that, you know, heads up there and does a private room. And, of course, there's also the celebrations from folks who, who love food. You say the word foodies. And maybe they're not an income tax bracket of the Goldman, but they've saved all year for an anniversary um, when you were running EMP, was it a mix or was it a lot? I mean, be honest. Like, was it mostly closing dinners and a few no. anniversaries? Because I'm, I'm just, I, I, the name, the name has always been so synonymous with celebration, and you're a big part of that. Clearly, no. I mean, I think it's a mix of all of them. Definitely not a majority of closing dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's for people who are looking to celebrate something important in their lives, for people who needed to be given the grace for a few hours to forget about something difficult in their lives, for people where the meal was the celebration itself, to your point, like someone who saved up for that meal in the same way that some would save up to get tickets to go see Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, great, great And everything comparison. in between. Great comparison. We, you, we're, we're saying in the past tense, which is kind of odd because I feel like you're always going to be part of EMP in my brain, but I, I don't follow the... the the mechanism, the mechanisms, and the the movements of of that of dining in New York as much as I used to. But you left uh, you left the company. You consciously uncoupled with Daniel Hum in a way. Mm. Um, do you miss being there in the dining room? I mean, you're you're such a part of it for so long. Yeah, I mean, eleven Madison Park is like a, a child to me. And, yeah. And my partner and I got divorced. Yeah. And he 
he got custody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I like, I mean, listen, working in that dining room was one of the great experiences of my life. And being able to build a culture of unreasonable hospitality there and see all the things that it, it allowed that restaurant to achieve was something I'll, I'll celebrate forever. The principles, though, of what we did there are not limited to that room. And as much as I miss it, you know, what's super cool is now I go to restaurants all over America and around the world and I see them doing the things that we started doing there. And that kind of impact is more important to me than anything else. Yeah, and it gives you the time. I mean, clearly when you were running EMP, you had to be in New York a lot and now you can travel and that must be gratifying. I want to ask you about March 13th, 2020. Many say that Friday, I, I vividly remember, I know what I was doing, was the last real day of, of regular service in New York City before the pandemic really shut things down. I mean, did you? could you imagine at the time where we ended up two, two plus years later? I mean, what was, what was that day like for you? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, like, like many people, the pandemic was hard in a lot of ways. And like many people, it gave me a few gifts. Um, when I sold EMP and Nomad Make It Nice, my, my, my half of that whole company, um, you start to have a bit of an identity crisis, right? Because when you spend so much of your life doing something and you're celebrated for doing it well, it starts to become who you are. And so before the ink was even dry on selling that company, I was, you know, you could say frantically moving towards opening more restaurants. Yeah. And on March 13th, I was, and this is not hyperbole, and this is, I'm not exaggerating here, one week away from signing three restaurant leases and a corporate office lease in New York City. Holy cow. And, and like, the, like it vetted through legal, like red lines were out, you were ready to. The leases were done. One of the restaurants was fully designed. Amazing. Um, and wow. then I moved up to the, to our house in the country for what I thought would be a few weeks and, you know, kept those deals warm. And then a few weeks turned into a few months and continued keeping those deals warm. And eventually decided to let them go. Because what I found myself doing was like running back as quickly as possible to doing the thing that I'd always done and not giving myself the space to decide whether I wanted to do it again. And so, yeah, on March 12th, <laughs> had you asked me what I'd be doing today, I would have had probably three, four, five restaurants in New York City. And, and now my life looks completely different. And... And I'm very grateful for that. You use the term gift, and I'd like to hear about that. You know, we were talking off, Mike, you're in the city a couple times a month, it sounds like. You live in Kingston. I live up there as well. I moved as well during the pandemic, and I am in the city a little bit more frequently. But I guess the the life up in Kingston um, is different than New York. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you laugh. I mean, it's what what is the gift? What was the gift of, of geography up there? What was the gift of... of being with your partner, Christina Tosi, more in the up, you know, upstate life. What, what, what are these gifts you speak of? Well, I mean, we had a daughter. That's probably the best gift I wanted you to of bring all that of up. them. I, I um, mean. And her name is Frankie, named after my dad, who's my everything. Absolutely. Um, and, man, I can't imagine having – she's 18 months as of a couple days ago. And the idea that I could have had her – in the city working the way that I used to work 
it would have been great. I would have made the most of it, and I love yeah. being a dad. I would have figured it out. But as compared to what the experience has been like with her up there, I mean, it's a no-brainer. And we we live in a beautiful place, and we're out in the nature, and mm-hmm. like riding bikes and doing all this stuff. We're also still working very very hard and working on a bunch of things because I need to feel passionate about the work I'm putting out into the world to feel whole. But I've been able to explore a lot of other things that bring me a lot of joy because ultimately I want to run towards something Mm -hmm. as opposed to just running back to something. So, Will, let me ask you. So without that day-to-day grind of three restaurants and, and, you know, fast casual and and fine dining, um, what are you running towards in terms of, like, your professional life? We can talk about, you know, being – you probably have taken up some cool hobbies. I mean, as we all have. (laughs) But – what are your prof- what are you running towards professionally? I'm really curious upstate and in the uh, Hudson Valley. Well, the book was a a big part yeah. of the last couple of you years. You wrote it while during the pandemic. I yeah. wrote it during the pandemic. Yeah. Because listen, so yesterday was the Welcome Conference, which is yep. this annual hospitality symposium that I started uh, with a friend of mine Anthony Rudolph 8 years ago. And when we started it, it was just dining room people, and then it became dining room people and chefs, um, and then it became dining room people and chefs and people from insurance and construction and finance. And the thing that I find a lot of pleasure in trying to do is taking the principles of hospitality and extending them outside of what is normally considered to be the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. I think the the hospitality industry is – is, is poorly articulated. There's restaurants and hotels, but every business that's in the customer service industry can be in the hospitality business. It's just or industry. It's just a matter of what choices you make and, mm-hmm. and what you prioritize. And I genu- like when I get super soapboxy, and this is something anyone who worked for me over the years has heard me say countless times that restaurants are magical because we can make the world a nicer place by being really, really unreasonably kind to everyone that walks through our doors. And I am pretty motivated to try to apply those principles to a lot of other industries because you you look especially at what's happening in the world right now and how divisive it feels sometimes. And I really do believe that hospitality is the answer. Yeah. So, so let's talk about industries. I mean, are we? Can we have um, unreasonable hospitality? And like my electrician, can 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 my tree guy, can the um, MTA, a hundred percent, have unreasonable hospitality? Hundred percent. Because here's the deal. This is why I'll tell you why that shift was so powerful at Eleven Madison Park. First, well, obviously it made our guests happier, right? We did really cool stuff for people. But it made our team happier as well. First, because for the first time, they had creative autonomy. Mm. They weren't just helping to execute someone else's vision anymore, serving plates of food that someone else had created. They were coming up with their own ideas, and those ideas were directly impacting the guest experience. It's like taking you know, um, salespeople and turning them into product designers. Mm-hmm. And... This is human nature. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. People will always be more motivated and give more of themselves to something if they had a hand in designing it. It feels good when you can actually have creative input in your work. Yeah, creative equity doesn't have to be monetary. Yeah. It, it can be just owning um, uh, an aspect of the of the vision of the launch of something, right? Exactly. Yeah, that that feels good. I and feel and then also, like, it made 
all of us happy because we're making other people really happy. And it feels good to make other people happy. And so I, I think any service business, which, by the way, is 75% of our GDP right now. Right. I think anyone can make that choice. And it looks different industry by industry. But, yeah, finance, electricians, the tree guy. Mm-hmm. The DMV, I believe, I, I've, I've, I've joked about this for years, that if there was a law passed where everyone had to be really nice to everyone that worked at the DMV, suddenly the DMV would become a nice place to go. Yeah. I have to say, the, uh, the DMV in Goshen, New York, extremely nice. Well, yeah, I like, should actually, I should change that story now that I don't live in New York City it, because it, it is a quite a different scenario once you get upstate. I got a license plate recently, <laughs> met some cool people, saw my community, met, met people in line. But yeah, it, living in New York for almost 20 years, the DMV here is not as great. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me flip the question then. Um, how can we then as customers be better how can we be better diners? How can we be better um, clients? Like, I feel like it, it has to be a two-way street, right? 100%. Particularly when you say 70% of the GDP is is service. It's This is, like, fundamental in our, making our society actually work. I mean, so hospitality is about how you pursue relationships. And the beautiful part about relationships, which also makes <laughs> – it's also the complicated part of relationships, or they require – you know, multiple people in the relationship, right? And I just, like, unreasonable hospitality, the idea is it should apply to how we live as people as well. And I, you know, like, the golden rule is so cheesily referenced. But, like, just put out the energy that you want to receive. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, okay, if we let's get technical here. Um, I think one of the best things a diner can do is communicate what they're looking to get out of the meal. You know, like... Sometimes there's guests that want to just be left alone. Sometimes there's guests that want everything, you know, and a great restaurant when you have the right team, you can read the guest appropriately and deliver them the kind of experience that they want. But yeah, it would be like if instead of people having to decide whether someone liked them or not, like when you're Mm. dating in high school, it's just like, I like you. Do you like me? All right, great. Let's let's skip over all that annoying stuff. I feel feel the new generation... Younger people <laughs> um, are slightly more transparent about feelings and about um, so, uh, social situations, and the over-articulating of what you want in 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 a dining experience is potentially there already. Yeah, to to a point. I mean, like, I just think, listen, any time, uh, just think about any relationship in the same way you might think about, you know, your marriage, right? Some. It's easier to pursue your wife when you're both like really communicative of of where you're at when you check in from time to time, when mm-hmm. you communicate your expectations, what you need out of the day. And I think anytime people can communicate their expectations, it sets up the relationship for greater success. Well said. I, I, I take that point strongly. It's great. Um, I want to find out a little bit about your thoughts on like dining culture, restaurant culture, because – I've I've played this pet theory uh, with a few of our guests, and I wanted to get your take. What if we as diners, what if we dined out less but paid more for the times we dined out? Mm. And then coupled with that, we cooked a little bit more at home, and we thought about these two elements of our lives as being separate. There's the dining out experience, and then there's a the cooking experience. I feel like that it's obviously wishful thinking in many ways, I feel like that is maybe the recipe for a better restaurant experience writ large. What do you what do you think about that theory? I mean, listen, if you look at the industry right now, there's two things that are undeniably true. 
following the pandemic and everything that happened over those two and a half years. On one hand, the business model is fragile. Restaurants need to figure out how to become better businesses. And then on the other hand, there's some foundational issues in how people are paid and people need to be paid more. Those two problems are not friends, right? Like no. to, to solve one, you make the other one worse. Um, and charging more is a great first step towards towards solving it. I mean, listen, I live in the country right now. I'm kind of doing exactly the thing you're saying, right? We cook a lot more. And then because of that, when we go out, I, I don't actually look at prices. Mm-hmm. Because we're going out just for a big special night out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty beautiful utopian idea. I think there's plenty of people who, based on kids and lives and work and whatnot, sometimes like finding that time to cook is not necessarily a reality. A hundred percent. I think also the unlock there or the, the key there is unlocking a, a home cooking solution that isn't like scratch cooking, which is a weird, <laughs> weird term and I rarely use it, but like – there's like the semi That isn't scratch cooking and is also not like <laughs> add milk from the box. Right, exactly. It's like using um, the four or five ingredient, using meal kits, which I'm a huge fan of, and using that as a crutch to get home cooking more and more into your kind of day-to-day activity. And then to your point, when you go out, it's more of a celebration. We're relying less on the apps. I mean, this is just a utopia, as you said, but like we're, we're, we're seamless is maybe less of our, we're, we're not reaching for seamless as yeah. much. You know, but you know, one of the things that I've actually seen with people cooking more and more is when you talk about how can people be better diners, to recognize that food is meant to cost more in a restaurant than when you cook it at home. Yep. Just because a piece of chicken costs X from the Whole Foods does not mean that that should be the cost of a chicken dish at a restaurant. People like somehow miraculously fail to understand that there's yeah. rent and there's staff and there's taxes and there's insurance and there's linens and uniforms. And it's so interesting when you read comments about how restaurants price their food. People are appalled when they hear that a restaurant doesn't pay someone as much as they think they should be paid, and yet they're appalled if restaurant prices Prices. go up $2. Yeah. And it's almost like, hey, no one ever says that about a car. Why why are restaurant prices so much more scrutinized than almost or every a beer. other? Yeah, look at the prices of like like macro beers. Like yeah. just the price of beer has gone up like thirty percent in the past three years. Yeah. Like, um, fast food. My, that's my quick quick answer or, or theory is that like fast food, we just have been programmed. Um, yes. A cost structure that is unattainable, unrealistic, unhealthy. There's a lot of problems. It's just dis- deprogramming our reliance on fast food and the mostly the cost. I'm not against fast food, of course, um, but I think it's the cost structure of fast food that oh, we have and, deprogrammed. And moderation, fast food can be a very good thing. Oh, I mean, stop! <laughs> like uh, this is this is seven seven liter burrito hive over here. Taste <laughs> podcast. I mean, I'm a Taco Bell. You know, once or twice a month. I mean, I, I love Taco Bell. For my first anniversary with Christina, we were doing EMP Summer House in the Hamptons, and I had the team make, like, our own riffs on Taco Bell. Yeah. And did, like, a whole beach picnic for the two of us. And I posted a picture on Instagram of that, and through that ended up becoming friends with the executive chef of Taco Bell. Oh. And for her birthday two years later, I surprised her, and we took over the Taco Bell test kitchen in California. In California, in, like, uh, Southern California. And one of the great experiences of our lives. (laughs) 
Listeners of this show knows my fascination with the Taco Bell Test Kitchen in, in Southern California. I have been invited there. I did not accept the invite, and I, and I regret that, that was monthly. A, that was one of the biggest mistakes of your life. I know, Will. So tell me, when you took it over and you cooked a meal in the Test Kitchen, what, what were you I mean, making? No, we made, I mean, we made 50 different riffs. It's so cool. I mean, like, you just, we were there for hours. We just kept on, we're like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? And oh, and then Christina and I are, like, kind of competing to who can. How fun. <laughs> That's really cute, and 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 really, it shows. I think it's thoughtful of you, but it's also just a really great way of like uh, expressing yourself through food, and, and just it's fun. Well, it's that, just having fun, exactly. It's the cost structure. Just to, to put a bow on that conversation, I feel like the cost structure has really hurt us as a as a society. Food should not cost that low. Yeah. You know? Let's talk about the Welcome Conference, which you hosted yesterday. I've attended. It's it's an amazing experience, and I, I recommend our listeners seeking it out for future years. And I wanted to ask you um, from the stage and also from, like, the cocktail party where you get to get a little <laughs> bit of, a, of more of the goss side of it. Are there any themes that you're you're really hearing from the industry as we move out of the pandemic and into kind of more normal life? New normal life, I'll say? Yeah, I mean— Okay, the pandemic was like we were on life support. Now the pandemic, let's let's say it's over. Let's just decide I mean, the it's president, over. I mean, not we're not like quoting the president in here, sorry, but he just said it. Like But that doesn't mean like, all right, everything's great. Right? Oh, like th- there's a lot of challenges ahead. I mean, like when we talked about this yesterday, I mean the staffing issues are just insane and and are making running a restaurant very, very difficult right now, regardless of how much you're paying mm-hmm. people. Um, there were a lot of people that left the restaurant business throughout the the pandemic, and, and they don't seem to be coming back. So now it's about nurturing an entire new generation of people that find passion in the work, which there's a lot to be passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, the, the next 6 to 12 months doesn't look great. I mean, you see what happened on FedEx's quarterly earnings call where, you know, they talk about where things are going. And everyone that I know that is much smarter than me with – regards to how economic forecasts mm-hmm. look right now, we'll tell you that we're, we've just come out of one challenging season and we're about to go into another challenging season. I think when you go into the restaurant business, you do so because you, you like being a part of a community of, of people that are passionate about the same things that you are. And we've all been facing all of these issues, um, fear, uncertainty, anxiety, apprehension, um, and they've been made much harder because of the fact that we've all felt so disconnected from one another as well. And so what are people thinking about? I mean, everything I just said. But yesterday, kind of being back together, all of us in a room, restaurateurs and chefs from all over the country and, and some from around the world, like just knowing that you're in it together and you have one another's backs, it makes the kind of challenges or problems that when you're alone feel unsolvable feel a bit more solvable. Yeah, I mean, you have thought leaders from all over the world. You have also folks from not the restaurant industry talking about your industry. I'd like to know about uh, just getting like pay, like compensation and tipping. I, I wonder if there's any um, thought out of the conference or in general about where we stand with tipping. The models have changed many times over over the past five years. I feel like most of the time it's been tipping works. It's part of the culture of the restaurant, but I want to get your take on it right now, where we stand. And we didn't talk about that at the conference. Where Moving to a no-tipping model, I think if 
it's the kind of restaurant where that can work, it's an amazing step to take. I think it's really nice when you're a server or an assistant server or a food runner, whatever position you are, to know like what you're going to make. Mm-hmm. You know, like salary, your salary. Yeah, employee. it feel it takes it from like it's just a gig to it's a profession now. Like you have you can rely mm-hmm. on earnings, and when you take a sick day, you can rely on those earnings, and. When you have vacation, your vacation days are paid at that same rate. Yeah. The, the problem is that, I mean, you kind of need the restaurant to be the same level of full all the time in order for it to work. Yeah. That, and, and that's like impossible with so – like not impossible but m- very difficult especially with this health crisis and with costs and, and just our economy – all the bad news. People are spending less at restaurants right now. But that's, I mean, we when when I did no tipping at Eleven Madison Park, it was amazing for our culture. Oh sure, and there's successful examples like uh, Dirt Candy, Amanda Cohen's restaurant is a no tipping, and she has all of her staff on salary. And I, I highly recommend checking out Dirt Candy in New York. And Amanda's been on the show. Um, what she's done for our industry, yeah. I mean, you talk about like what she did, however many years ago for vegan cooking. Like she's. I got to know her pretty well through the Independent Restaurant Coalition work. Right. I think she's amazing. She's amazing. She should have won the Beard Award. I said it on record. I say it again this year. Not to not to hate on anyone who, who won it. But Amanda Cohen's great. I hope to have her back. I want to talk about you and Christina Tosi and your and Frankie. What are the three of you cooking at home? <laughs> I'd love to get a sense of what uh, – because you, you are cooking more at home. You're up in Kingston. And we cook. We cook a whole range of stuff. I mean we're coming off the summer. And my summer gift to myself was a Traeger yeah. uh, smoker. Great. So I ruined a lot of brisket this summer. Not easy. Until I, I got to the end of the summer and I got a couple. Cool. I started to get a couple dialed in. Yeah. Um, I really love that. But I mean, like we eat simply most of the time. Like we, we, we have a lot of people that come and visit us up there and we have a guest house and people stay in. And that's kind of why I love being up there. I have my weekdays where I just get to be like fully present with my family and get work done. And then on the weekends, people come up and yeah. it's a big party. And um, But so when people are up, we do all sorts of stuff. And we just love cooking kind of anything. We'll do big Italian feasts or yeah. we'll do a ton of grilling during the summer mm-hmm. or um, – I'm very proud of my carbonara. I think I make oh, one wow. of the great carbonaras out there. So, and so with carbonara, I mean, are you? Is it about the the finishing moment, the emulsification, and getting that right? Yeah, I mean, we. What, I only make carbonara when there's like three people that I'm serving. Agree. The only way to do it, you can't. It's not a platter dish. Or it can be eight people, but you're. You're eating it the moment I give it to yeah. you. We're not eating together. <laughs> Definitely not. It's like glue if it's like 30 seconds after your plate. I love that you've mastered that one. And then, of course, on the on the sweets and the baking side, I mean, Christina, and I think she's she's releasing a book this this fall, and she's booked on the show, so we'll have her on. We'll awesome. have her on. I mean, what's that like? What's what? I mean, what's the what's the dessert? Uh, do you have a dessert table? You know, like dessert tables, dude. So we <laughs> we don't now, thank God, uh, because. We did. I mean, listen, there's seasons where if I don't show unreasonable discipline, I can gain a lot of weight very, very quickly living with her. But during COVID, she was doing Bake Club every single day. Oh, that's right. I loved those. Oh, that's right. I mean, Christina's a genius. She could open up 
her Instagram account and just do something for the first time. But she takes her work seriously. If she's going to be mm-hmm. like teaching people how to do something, she wants to make sure she did it before and that it's dialed in and it's just right. So every single day, there were multiple things getting pumped out of our kitchen. Whatever she was making on Bay Club itself, because she was doing that live, other things that she was recipe testing to do on Bay Club in the days that followed. Yeah. And she was still creating stuff for Milk Bar every day. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so I got, I, I looked up at some point months into the pandemic, and I was like, oh, I've gained a lot of weight, and it's time to stop. And so sometimes when she's done with the stuff, I will throw them everything in the garbage and then put the, the used coffee grinds on oh, yeah. top of or it. salt. I, I just know Just to make sure that I'm never going to be that guy that's it. like, well, I mean, it's on the top of the garbage. You're like, you cookie. go back to it. Like, oh, that was so good. <laughs> that bar was, that lemon bar was so good. I want to know about your plans upstate because, you know, listen, I, I'm just selfishly, um, we don't live too far from each other. What are you, what are you thinking? Like, what's, what's the, I know you're, you're working on something like a hotel's, scenario. Yeah. And so, yeah, the thing I'm looking to build upstate is, I mean, I just think Blackberry Farm is one of the coolest things on the planet. And I'm inspired to try to create something like that of my own. Big swing, huge swing. Well, with the intention of it being my only swing, you know, when I, when I sold the company, we had eight restaurants, 1800 employees, something like that. And I want to do something significant, mm-hmm. but singular. I also want to drive to work in a golf cart. And, yeah, <laughs> and I want to raise my my daughter like in a place like that, yeah. surrounded by culture and real people doing real yeah. work. And and so that's that's my that's my next chapter. Yeah, the line on Black. I've never been to Blackberry Farm, but the line is really it is luxury. It is um, at the level of Relais Chateau. I'm not sure if it's technically Relais Chateau, but it has a real soul to yeah. it, and the owners are a family. Um, great comparison. I wish you all the best <laughs> getting there. Thank you, Will Gadara. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook or food book project that you can work on without the burden of time, meaning you have no real deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to get it done, what would that book be? I mean, that's a tough one because you're asking me the moment, like a month before my dream book comes out. I I put some guests in this pickle <laughs> of a situation, and Unreasonable Hospitality is great, by the way. I, I, I can't say enough about how it's memoir, but it's a lot of real advice. Well, yeah, and you know the the book was is not meant to be a memoir. It's a it's a book about with all of the lessons I've learned over the course of my career about service and leadership through the lens of hospitality. Yes. That said, I want the book itself to be hospitable, and some of the books that I've read that cover issues like that, I have a hard time getting through. And so the mm-hmm. narrative, a little bit about my mm-hmm. my youth, and then taking Eleven Madison Park to number one. Is just there so that it makes it fun to read about things yeah. that I believe can make your business and your life a bit more, um, a bit better. I mean, your time of the modern is covered, the ice cream cart that you launched. I mean, it, it gets into like the weeds of a little bit about how you took like this education, this passion and took on small projects and made those bigger and bigger. I think it's a great takeaway for me is that you don't necessarily have to open a restaurant. It can be a smaller project within a larger organization that could rise you to the top. But I guess my next, if if if, if I were there. to say, like, what would another book, and I honestly haven't even thought about that at all until you're asking me Theoretically, this, this is all theory. I mean, I, I, I think hospitality, you know, like when you, you always hear 
and Christina's speaking to our daughter in Italian, um, and our nanny speaks to her in Portuguese because it's easier for kids to learn languages when they're young. Mm -hmm. I think a kid's book about hospitality would be pretty cool. Amazing. Wow. So a kid's book. Teaching kids the language of hospitality. I love it. I love that. And and you could throw some cool illustrations in there. There you go. (laughs) Will Gadira, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.